Well, praise the Lord. Good morning. I am, as Nathan alluded, I'm Steve Hopp, one of three pastors here at Piney Ridge Church, and it's my privilege to come to you this morning and proclaim God's Word and to first read the Word of God to you. And, and I echo what Nathan said. If you have a Bible, it would probably be best if you have a Bible open. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back. And if you don't own one, you're welcome to take one as our gift. But this morning I will be pointing back to verses quite frequently, and they're not going to be on the screen, so it would be helpful for you to have the Bible open this morning. So here we go, Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. 
When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you? that you have brought such a great sin upon them. And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of them. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, And out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today... You have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon, this day, upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, This people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. think before we get started, I want to just pray for a minute. Lord God, uh, I pray for your spirit to speak powerfully through me this morning. Lord, I need you. 
I pray that you will help me to speak as one speaking the oracles of God. And Lord, I pray that you will be faithful to your promise, that your word will accomplish the purpose that you have set out for it. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will change hearts and minds this morning. In the name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen. Well, uh, in 2011, I had back surgery. And uh, I was kind of surprised, taken, taken by surprise, by the elaborate routine that they gave me to undergo prior to the surgery, even the night before, in order to cleanse myself. I had to, uh, to take a shower with some special soap, and I had to scrub myself furiously all over with it, and antibacterial soap. Then I was to rinse off, dry off, and then get back in the shower and take this bottle of stuff they gave me and put it all over and air dry. And then the direction said, and then put on clean pajamas, it said. The next morning I was to get up and I was to go through that entire routine again. Shower, towel, antibacterial solution, air dry. And then I could go to the hospital, whereupon I was greeted with this big thing of antibacterial wipes, and I was told to clean myself again all over with these antibacterial wipes. And finally, I was able to put on the surgical gown. Finally, I guess I was clean enough to go into the surgical suite. Well, some of you may have guessed that I'm Thinking of this as an analogy for sin, we are all born dead in our trespasses. We are all born covered inside and out with a spiritual bacteria called sin. But the thing is, no matter what we do to try to wipe that sin and wipe away the guilt of that sin by good works or religious practices or whatever, we cannot do it. There's only one remedy for sin. There's only one anti-sin cleanser, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. As the, as the hymn says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And praise the Lord that in His mercy and be, because of the great love with which He loved us, God has provided the cure for sin. And if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation and the forgiveness of your sin, I beg you to do that this morning. Cry out to the Lord to save you. Because all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, as you heard, we are in Exodus 32 this morning, and that may have come as a surprise to some of you since we preached from Exodus 24 last week. In Exodus 24, we saw that, that Moses left Aaron and her and the 70 elders in charge of the Israelites, and he instructed them to wait for him until he returned. And then God called him up to the top of Mount Sinai, and he stayed at the top of the mountain 
for 40 days and 40 nights, and that's where chapter 24 ends. Chapter 32 picks up maybe about most of the way through those 40 days, maybe five weeks later. And we see that the people of Israel are breaking covenant with God even as God is still giving some terms of the covenant to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. We're going to see today two compelling conversations between Moses and God. We're going to see the Israelites be punished for their sin. And there's a lot here. There's a, there's a lot that's not going to get covered this morning, but here's the takeaway that I want you to have from this morning's message. Sinners receive God's mercy only through the mediation of Christ. Sinners receive God's mercy only through Christ's mediation. And my prayer is that you will leave here this morning with a greater understanding of of your sin, with a greater appreciation for the mercy of God, and with a greater love for Jesus Christ, our mediator. And so we're going to start with the first word of that takeaway, sinners. We begin by looking at the un- deserving rebellious sinners in the nation of Israel in Exodus 32. You know, a lot's happened since they escaped from Egypt. God made a path for them through the Red Sea, and they went through it, and then God brought the sea crashing down on the the Egyptians, the army, and killed them and drowned them. And then as they made their way towards Sinai, God provided fresh water where there was none, and he provided quail, and he provided a, a, daily, um, a daily manifestation of manna. He enabled them to be victorious over the Amalekites when they were attacked. He brought them to Sinai and he spoke to them ten words from the fiery mountain. And he confirmed his covenant with them. I will be your God and you will be my people. And part of that confirmation was to invite the leaders halfway up the mountain to enjoy a meal and to see God. And all of this took place roughly in the time span of about three months. A lot of activity in three months. But now Moses has gone up to the mountain and he's been there, as I said, for about five weeks and the people of Israel are getting antsy. They're getting impatient. Uh, Is Moses ever going to come back? Uh, Did God kill him up there on the top of the mountain? Or has he abandoned us? And and what about this Yahweh who led us out of Egypt? Where's he gone? Is he still up there in the cloud? Or has he gone off to find some other people? And they're thinking, we need to hit the road. And we need gods to lead us. And so they go to Aaron and they say, make us gods to lead us, make us gods. And the shocking, one of the most shocking things, I think, in Exodus 32 is Aaron's complete haplessness as a leader. Aaron just 
just submits. He just, okay, I'll make you gods. He didn't stand up and defend Moses. He didn't say, hey, Moses said we are wait for him. Let's stay together and wait. There's no indication that he went to the 70 elders or to her and sought counsel. He just did what they wanted him to do for whatever reason. And so we see in verse 2 that Aaron collects the gold earrings and melts them down and fashions, it says, a golden calf for them. And then the people say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So much for having no other gods before Yahweh. Or maybe they were thinking back to their time in Egypt when all the gods had their visible rep, uh, representations, maybe calves that they worshipped. And maybe they said, hey, we need a picture of Yahweh. But if that's the case, there goes the second commandment down the drain. And then in verse 5, Aaron seems to try, maybe a little bit, to divert their attention back to Yahweh, and he declares a feast for Yahweh. But it all goes wrong, doesn't it? And the people rise early, and it says they made burnt offerings and peace offerings. Don't confuse those with the offerings sanctioned by Yahweh. Those were pagan rites. And when it says the people ate and drank and rose to play, well, let's just say nothing good was happening. It's amazing. Even God says to Moses, it's amazing how quickly the people have turned away from him. I mean, it's only been six weeks since they saw the fire and heard the trumpet and felt the earthquake and heard the very words of Yahweh speaking the Ten Commandments. And it's only been about five weeks since they said this in Exodus 24, 7, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Well, let's not point our fingers too judgmentally at these Israelites. We know that Their descendants continued to do the same thing all through Old Testament. And then Paul, speaking to the Galatians, in Galatians 1, says this to them, I'm astonished at how quickly you are deserting Christ and turning to a false gospel. So let's not pretend that this this problem was just a problem for them in Exodus 32. It's a problem today in 21st century American church. And Piney Ridge Church, we need to be on guard. We need to be on guard against false gospels, and we need to be on guard about turning our attention to things and and giving our worship to things that are not the true and living God. And we need to be on guard individually and as families that we don't let ourselves begin to worship the things of the world rather than the God who provides them. Exodus 32 is a perfect example of the unfaithful human heart. It's a perfect picture of how we tend to be, right? 
As the song says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And like the Israelites who hadn't heard from God or Moses for about five weeks, when we think that God has been silent for a few days or a few weeks or a few months, when we think, oh, I'm not feeling the joy that I think that I should be feeling or the peace that I should be feeling, or I'm going through this trial or this tribulation, or I've prayed and prayed and prayed, and God hasn't answered the way I wanted Him to. And we begin to let our hearts wander from God. James tells us in James chapter 4 that, listen, the problem with you, church, isn't out there. It's in here. He said, you want to know why you're having quarrels and strife in your church? It's because of the desires that are at war within your own selves. That war with what? War with the Holy Spirit that God placed in you. And he builds up this argument until finally in verse 4 of James 4, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's talking to the church. He's calling them spiritual adulterers. You know, God has always equated idolatry with adultery because the people of God are in a sacred covenant with Him. And our marriage covenants are kind of a picture of that, but this covenant that we have with God is oh so much more important and more sacred. And when we let our hearts begin to worship things like whether it's money or popularity or comfort or sex or sports or politics, or kids, or grandkids, or whatever. When we worship anything other than our God, and even if we do it in the name of God, as Aaron attempted to do, we're committing adultery against him and his sinful wickedness. Uh, Listen, idolatry is serious business with God. Just look in verse 10. God says to Moses, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. God says the just punishment for these people would be for me to just wipe them out and start over with you. And then Moses comes down from the mountain, and what does he do at the bottom of the hill, at the bottom of the mountain? takes the two tablets, the tablets written on by the finger of God. And I don't think this was in a fit of rage, of of sinful anger. I think it was holy and righteous anger, and I think he did it on purpose. I think he took those tablets and he smashed them down to the ground as a picture to the people of Israel. You have broken covenant with God. And then in 25 through 29, Moses says, hey, who's... Who's for the Lord? 
come stand by me. And, and the Levites come and stand by him. And they go through the camp and they, and they murder 3,000 men. And we talked about this in our elders meeting on Tuesday. And I think that those people that were killed were the ones who were unrepentant. I think a lot of Israel probably saw what they did and they repented, but these men went through and, and, and killed the ones who were unrepentant. And you know, I wonder if any of us are sitting there thinking, well, that's a rather extreme punishment. I mean, they didn't kill anybody. They didn't hurt anyone. They just made a silly idol. But if we're thinking that, I want to tell you that I think that our consciences are being informed more by 21st century Western sensibilities than by the Word of God. To turn around a popular saying, some of us are too earthly-minded to be any heavenly good. We value the things of this world too highly, and we don't value the things of God highly enough. Listen to me. God is serious about sin, and especially the sin of idolatry, and he is serious about the consequences of sin. And all you have to do is to look at the cross of Christ to know what sin cost. It cost the life of of the Son of God. And we need to face up to the fact that our God is a jealous God, not a sinfully jealous God, but a righteously, holy, jealous God. And He yearns jealously for the Spirit that He placed within us. He demands and He deserves your worship. And He demands and He deserves your single-minded loyalty. And when you worship anything other than God, it is a treasonous act of infinite proportions. But praise God. Praise God for His bountiful and faithful mercy. And because He is a God of mercy and a God of grace, He has made a way to forgive and justify Sinners, And so we move to part two. Sinners receive God's mercy. Now, maybe you have a hard time seeing God's mercy in Exodus 32. So let me help you find it. <clears throat> Let's look again at that conversation between God and, and Moses starting in verse 11. Moses pleads with God not to destroy Israel. And first of all, he bases it on God's reputation. He says, what are the Egyptians going to say? They're going to say that you, you brought these people out of Egypt with evil intent. And then he bases it on the faithfulness and the truthfulness of God. In verse 13, he cites the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says to him, you swore by your own self that you would multiply their offsprings and bring them to the land that you promised. And what happens in verse 14? That's where we see the mercy of God. It says, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Do you see the mercy of God there? Israel deserved to be consumed. 
but God relented. It reminds me of the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis, the, the account of Adam and Eve in Genesis, where God said to them, don't eat from the fruit. You can have all the trees in the garden, but there's one tree. Don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens in Genesis 3? They do it. They eat the forbidden fruit. But God had said, in the day that you eat the fruit, you will surely die. And then in Genesis 3, we see that God relented. And he didn't kill them, at least not right away. Yes, he cursed them. Yes, he said, you're going to die. Yes, he cursed Adam and Eve, and he cursed the ground, and he cursed the serpent. But where's the mercy of God in that? In the middle of the curses, God says to Eve, your seed, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. In the middle of the curse, God gave them hope by promising to make a way for forgiveness. We see the mercy of God again in verse 34. God says to Moses, Now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. God's not going to destroy his people. Yes, some of them died, but his covenant with the nation of Israel, he's going to stand by it. And he's going to stand by it even later as they continue to sin and sin and sin and, and fall into idolatry so that only two of the adults that are living at this time are ever going to make it to the promised land. Still, the corporate nation of Israel remains his people. And God will not forsake his people. Let's not be ignorant of the fact that there was a consequence for their sin. But he didn't turn his back on the nation. And if you are in Christ today, you are part of the universal church and you are part of the people of God. And if you are in Christ and if you persevere in Christ, he will not turn his back on you either. There is grace for you every day. His mercies are new every morning. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is grace to forgive your past sins. There is grace for you today to forgive the sins that you commit. And there will be grace for you tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and on to the day you die. And then there will be grace for you throughout eternity. You are his child. And you are the apple of his eye. But child of God, if you're living in unrepentant sin, stop it. Stop it. Fall to your knees and confess because a merciful God will be faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Despite our rebellious sin, the faithful and merciful God overflows to us, but he only does it through the mediator that he has chosen for us.
And so the last part, sinners receive God's mercy only through Christ's mediation. Again, I think the two conversations between God and Moses are just compelling. Look at the first one again. In verse 7, God gives Moses a rundown of what's going on at the bottom of the mountain. And then in verse 9, he says, let me alone so that I can destroy these people and start a new nation with you. Why does God say that? God is sovereign. He knows what he's going to do. So why does he say that to Moses? Is it because he's lost his temper and he's just making irrational threats? God forbid. That's something I would do. God doesn't get mad and say stupid things. He's sovereign, and he knows what he intends to do. So I ask again, why would he say to Moses, let me alone so I can destroy this people? Well, you know, I think when he says, let me alone so I can destroy this people, he's saying, if you let me alone, I will destroy these people. I think it's an invitation to Moses to not let him alone. I think God is saying to Moses, I want to teach you more about being a mediator. I want you to grow into that role. I want to strengthen your faith. Well, mediator, there's a $10 word for you. Somebody told me that we shouldn't use $10 words when a five-cent word will do. But sometimes, folks, in theology, five-cent words don't cover it. And so let me teach you. Kids, if you want to know what a mediator is, I'm going to tell you a story made up, I promise. But suppose I went to Pastor Nathan one day and I said, hey, I want to be up there on stage and I want to be a part of the musical worship team. And Nathan says to me, I'm not going to let you be in the musical worship team. You can't sing a lick and you're ugly. You'll scare all the people. And I say to Nathan, oh yeah, and I grab him by the collar and I punch him in the nose. If you were at my last sermon, you know I have a history of violence. (laughs) Well, now we have a situation, right? We got two pastors who are at each other's throats, can't stand to be in the same room with each other. We need a mediator. To mediate a dispute, which is what Nathan and I are having, we're having a dispute, we disagree, is to help bring about peace between the two parties, to reconcile them. That means peace, bring peace. What we need is Pastor Jason. So let's say that Pastor Jason goes to Nathan and he says, look, I know the Bible says that you should speak the truth, but it does say you should speak it in love. Do you think what you said to Steve was really very loving? think you probably need to go to him and ask his forgiveness. And then he comes to me and he says, look, I know you were hurt by what Nathan said, but do you really think that popping him in the nose was the godly response? I think you need to go to Nathan and ask his forgiveness. Jason is mediating between us. He's going between the two of us and attempting to establish peace between us. And that's what God is trying to train Moses to do. Moses is to be the mediator. He is to go between 
the people of Israel and God. The difference between my story and what's going on here is that Jason was trying to mediate peace between two sinful people. Moses is attempting to mediate peace between a sinful, rebellious, idolatrous nation and a pure, holy, morally perfect God. But Moses does pretty well, don't you think? Moses goes to God and he says, don't destroy your people. Not because they don't deserve it, but because of who you are. You're a merciful and gracious God. You are faithful to the promises that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God relents, not because Moses came and gave him a good argument for why God was wrong and this is a better idea, because God knew all along what he was going to do. But God wanted to do it in response to the prayer, to the intercession, to the mediation of Moses. He wanted Moses to pray and he would answer. And so he led Moses to do that. He led Moses to do and ask for the very thing that he delighted to do. But Moses was not the perfect mediator. Let's look down at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 30. I'm going to read this part. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps, I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord, and he said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. First, Moses says to Israel, I will go and see if I can make atonement for this sin. And then Moses shows himself a worthy shepherd by identifying his destiny with the destiny of the sheep. He says, if you're going to condemn them, then condemn me too. But God says to him, no, in verse 33. Whoever sinned against me, I will blot out. And therein lies the difficulty. Moses could not make atonement for the sin of God's people. While Moses was a great leader, acted at various times as a prophet, as a priest, even in some ways as a king, he was still a sinful human. It would take a better Moses, one prophesied by Moses himself in Deuteronomy 18. Let's take a look at that passage, Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15. Moses, talking to the people of Israel, says, Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at, at Mount Sinai, Horeb's another name for Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. 
And the Lord said to me, they're right in what they've spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That greater prophet, that greater priest, that greater king, and that greater mediator is Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.25, For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the better mediator because he could do what Moses could not. Only Christ Jesus could achieve reconciliation between God and sinful men. Only Christ Jesus could broker peace with God for sinful people. Only Christ Jesus could make atonement for their sins. Only Christ Jesus was the Son of God who became man and lived a sinless life. And only Christ Jesus could be the acceptable atoning sacrifice when he died on the cross. And only Christ Jesus' blood can wash away the sins of his people. And that cleansing of sin and guilt is only offered as a gift. We can't earn it. We must receive it humbly and gratefully. Isaiah prophesied words of Jesus when he said, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. We cannot buy salvation. We can't earn it. We must receive it as a gift. And if you are in Christ, and if you persevere in Christ to the end of your life, your mediator, Jesus Christ, steps up for you and says, Every time you sin, he says, I've got that one. I died for that sin. And God's mercy flows to you in forgiveness. Jesus is the better Moses. He is the mediator of a better covenant based on better promises. And Jesus has mediated peace between you and God. Paul says in Romans 5, If we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then later he says, and we rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Do you have peace with God? The bad news is that all people are in the same situation as the Israelites in Exodus 32. We're all born in sin, covered with the deadly bacteria, both inside and out of sin. Before surgery, I needed to be washed many times in antibacterial solutions. But more so, we all need to be washed in the anti-sin cleanser of Jesus' blood. 
And the good news is that we can be cleansed by faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've not placed your faith in Christ for your salvation, I stand on the authority of God's Word this morning and plead with you to do it. Do it today. Don't delay. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. And when we take communion in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to stay and and bow your heads and pray and ask God to open the eyes of your heart and your mind to see His glory. Ask Him to save you. If you want to talk to one of us, Nathan or Jason or I would love to talk to you more about the gospel. Just grab us after the gathering or write your name and, and contact information on a connection card and put it in the box in the back. Or you can email us at prcpastors at pineyridgechurch.org and we'll get back to you. Don't put it off. Do it today. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you have had that faith affirmed by a local church through baptism, I invite you to take the communion cup now. And I want to pray briefly before we take communion. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you that you are the better mediator, that we come to you now even in prayer because you are mediating on our behalf. We come before the throne of grace with confidence because of the blood of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you will uh, lift the veil from the hearts of those who are unbelieving, and I pray that you would fill with joy the hearts of those that are believing. Lord, I pray that this communion meal might be a means of grace for them to help them to love you more, to understand their need for you more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.